Hi, everyone. This is Catherine Adams. And Elizabeth Wallace. And you're listening to Binary System Podcast number 338. And tonight, we have two things we're going to talk about. At the end of the episode, we're going to recap two episodes of Lore Olympus. That would be 219, which is available right now on the Webtoons app, and 220, which is only available if you are fast-passing the episodes. We will give major spoiler warnings before that. But before we talk about that, today, as the day that this episode drops, is Thanksgiving, if you are in a place that celebrates Thanksgiving. And what do we use to celebrate Thanksgiving? Food. And we actually yep. were having a discussion last week after we had recorded about cookbooks, because I was going to be making the Osobuco recipe from the Hannibal cookbook, and Elizabeth mentioned checking out cookbooks from the library, which is a fantastic yep. idea that I don't think I've ever done, except I used to check out the Little House in the Prairie cookbook all the time until I finally decided to get myself my own copy, and we just started talking about food in those um, Little House on the Prairie series and how that was just something you would just linger over every time you read those books. Oh, yeah. I mean, her descriptions of food are just fantastic. But then it just sort of rolled into this discussion of people who write really good food descriptions. And we suddenly thought, we should do an episode about food. And then you were like, should we do it for Thanksgiving? I'm like, yes, we should. (laughs) And it was surprisingly tricky sometimes to identify books that I currently have and what foods I associate with them because a lot of times that's not the food that's in the book. It's the kind of food that I tend to enjoy while I'm reading it. Like if uh, I make those um, ooh, those those cheese cookies that have Rice Krispies in them, if I make a batch of those, I want to pull down a short story collection. So I oh, tend to associate my short story collections with that. And But then there'll be random things like Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. I read that when I was getting over... Um, a really bad stomach bug, and I associate it with saltine crackers because that was what I was eating because I was like, wow, this is the first food that's tasted good in a while. Ah, I remember in high school reading Dune, probably not for the first time, but um, anytime they were talking about spice, uh, it was around Christmas time, and Mom was making her um, reindeer cookies, which are not, it's not quite gingerbread, it's more like maple cookies and everything, but, you know, you get a little bit of the dough to eat because... uh, cookie dough always tastes better before it's cooked. I'm sorry, it just does. But to have a little bit of that while I was actually reading about the spice in Dune, I'm like, it just made it perfect. It did. Well, I mean, those cookies have, you know, molasses and ginger and clove and cinnamon and pretty much any kind of spicy content that's, you know, sweet spicy. So it was perfect Mm -hmm. to represent, in my mind, spice. Yep, yep. But this time, we actually decided we were going to talk specifically about the food that we remember from the books and read aloud a few passages from it. In some cases, we weren't able to. I was... Did you end up finding a copy of Dragon Singer? No, I don't have a copy of that, and I don't know why. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, there are a lot of books that I grew up with that I associate with types of food that I don't actually own. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's really, it's a terrible state of affairs, and I need to get myself another bookshelf so I can fill it up with all of these that I'm thinking about right now, because I'm just looking through this going, wait a minute, I don't have a full copy of the Narnia Chronicles? What the hell? Yeah, the Dragon Singer. One is particularly sad because, oh my God, the description of bubbly pies in Dragon Singer. Oh, I love that. Oh my goodness. Oh, I wanted man. to have those things. And you can look online, and there are many, many recipes for bubbly pies. One of which I think actually comes from the 
like the companion to the Dragon Riders of Pern series, which I remember looking at and going, yeah, I guess that's what they were going for. But it always just seems so much more delicious in the actual book. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's just dive right in. How about we actually save the Little House on the Prairie ones for the end? Mm Because that was what launched this discussion. But what book would you like to start with first? I'm going to do, this is probably cheating a little bit, but The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's the bit about Turkish delight that Edmund was Ah. bribed by the White Witch to betray his family with. Now, I am not talking about actual Turkish delight. I'm talking about what I thought Turkish delight was when I was reading the books. And I know I'm not alone out there because there are an awful lot of people who thought it was some kind of caramel toffee sort of thing, you know, coffee flavored, Mm -hmm. very not that odd translucent floral stuff that Turkish delight really is. So yeah, I just, I remember really loving that whole idea and thinking, oh, you could see somebody just who was hungry and cold and kind of resentful of their whole family anyway, being bribed with something like that. So she had given him a drink. She had taken something out of her coat and let a drop fall into the snow and there had been this drink that appeared and then he thought it was wonderful and she said, it is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. The queen let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. He was quite warm now and very comfortable. Yeah, and none of that seems to indicate floral tasting, but I just no, I have to no. remind myself that tastes would be different in England way back then than they are right about now. And I thought that you would probably pick the bit with Turkish Delight in there, so I picked a different section that I always liked, and it's when all the children are having dinner with the Beaver family. Oh, yes! Oh, I forgot about that bit. So they've all you know made the dinner, and they all sit down around the table to eat it together, and it says, there was a jug of creamy milk for the children, Mr. Beaver stuck to beer, and a great big lump of deep yellow butter in the middle of the table, from which everyone took as much as he wanted to go with his potatoes, and all the children thought, and I agree with them, that there's nothing to beat good freshwater fish if you eat it when it has been alive half an hour ago and has come out of the pan half a minute ago. And when they had finished the fish, Mrs. Beaver brought out unexpectedly out of the oven a great and gloriously sticky marmalade roll, steaming hot, and at the same time moved the kettle onto the fire. So when they had finished the marmalade roll, the tea was made and ready to be poured out. And I just thought, ah, delicious. That made me wish that I liked fish more, I remember, when I was Mm -hmm. reading that, because I don't think fish is generally tasted as good in real life as that sounded in that passage. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you like to do next? So one thing I wanted to mention in general, uh, because there were just so many references, was Aaron Morgenstern's uh, The Night Circus. And that is about a group of people. They're being influenced by magicians who are in the middle of a competition, but they don't know that. Well, the people want to create a circus, but it has to be a circus that no one has seen before, and they want every element to be perfect, right down to the costumes and the signs directing people to the different tents and the food. So there are several references to food, like the most perfect bright white 
popcorn that you've ever seen or caramel apples where the caramel is so rich it's almost black. And then one of the characters at one point asked for some of the caramel to be dribbled over the popcorn. I'm just going, this all does sound really perfect. But it kind of feeds into Aaron Morgenstern's uh, second book, The Starless Sea. And food in that is mentioned over and over again. And it's all tied to this idea of comfort. The harbor on the banks of the Starless Sea is a gigantic library, bookstore, castle, whatever, that's just filled with books everywhere, all different kinds, even like books that are hung from strings uh, from the ceiling to make a decoration, that sort of thing. But anywhere you go, there'll be like a glass of wine right next to a book that you find very fascinating, or someone will bring you a snack if you ask for it. And I just, I'm rereading the book now because it's been a while. And I just, all of that is such perfect comfort fall reading, I think. And the food is just such a big part of it. Oh, that sounds lovely. So I'm going to make a kind of switch over to different genres. So I remember we read The Grapes of Wrath in junior high. Mm -hmm. And I remember having a teacher talking to our mom about that being like, I kind of want to recommend things for them. But they started with The Grapes of Wrath. I mean, where do you go from there? (laughs) So there's I think there's some bits of food that are sort of sprinkled throughout the story. It's not really known for lovely food passages because it's about a family who is fleeing the Midwest to go to California where they're going to have a better life, and they totally don't. But basically they decide they're going to go ahead and go to California. And so they're trying to get all this stuff together. They're going to fix the truck. They're going to sell some stuff, get the house shut up, you know, packed up and everything. Now they have a pig because this is a farm and they decide, well, you know, it's a bit early for slaughtering a pig, but we don't want to bring the pig with us, but we don't want to lose the meat. So let's just slaughter the pig. And they start that fairly late at night and realize partway through, they're like, you know, I know we said we were going to leave pretty soon, but what's stopping us from leaving now? So there's this massive flurry of energy, and you have the whole description of slaughtering a pig and getting it all ready to be packed up in salt and everything. And one of the things the mother of the family does is, as they are getting the meat off the bones before they put it into salt, they carve the meat away from the bones as much as they can, and then they give the rib bones to her, and then she sticks them all in the oven to just kind of cook really slowly, she says, for gnawing purposes. And then later on, it's very, very early in the morning, they're just about ready, and it says, Ma opened the oven and took out the pile of roasted bones, crisp and brown, with plenty of gnawing meat left. Um, And it's talking about somebody woke up, and they said, but the adults stood around the door, shivering a little and gnawing at the crisp pork. And I'm like, that sounds like the most delicious thing ever. I will tell you, the very best pork I have ever had has been at Pig Pickens, where it is just an entire slab of a pig with the head and everything still attached on the gigantic pig cooker. And you just go and you like pick little bits of skin or fat or whatever off of it as it's cooking. It's so tasty. Oh, man. We're sorry to any vegetarians who are listening to our podcast. We know we have a few of them. I even know some people who are not vegetarians, but they refuse to eat pigs because of how intelligent they are. So I don't know. Um, uh, the trigger warning a little bit too late. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I'll jump genres again to horror and Tanith Lee's book. Uh, I think it's the Scarabai trilogy um, is what it's called, but the second book, Personal Darkness. Now, Everybody has to be warned when reading this series because there is some incest and it's very dark and lots of references to violence and everything like that. But it's about this family of 
maybe they're vampires. I mean, some of them feed on blood, but others don't. But they just, they have all this influence and all this money, but they just kind of are holed up inside their castles and they never really interact with somebody. But they're starting to come out because of the character Rachel has been brought in and there's been all this chaos and with her daughter and somebody who's sent to find her daughter because her daughter's a murderer. But anyway... God, it's so hard. You can't really describe these books because it all just sounds bonkers. But there's a yeah. there's a banquet that they have at one point, and it's one of those where they have the wine pairing for each course, and it's all just one paragraph. And I just love this paragraph. So let me go ahead and read this one aloud. There was steamed asparagus with butter and black pepper served with a Riesling of the Napa Valley. There came poached pike with a sauce of cumin, honey, oil, and white wine served with a dark rosé of Anjou. Lamb followed baked in pastry, having a filling of apples and dates and matched to a red African wine from Mabenga. After this was bream, flaked, and baked with onions and sugar and served with tall thimbles of vodka. Then strawberries and a brandy sauce with champagne Last arrived long plates of camembert, white goat's cheese, and strong cheddar with slices of guava, raisins, and various nuts, and a French dessert wine. Doesn't that sound lovely? Oh, my goodness. I don't think anything I have in any of my books is going to match up to that. That sounds amazing. (laughs) So I'll jump genres again. The Crystal Singer series by Anne McCaffrey. Ah, yes. Those books, they have food scattered all throughout the books. They even have yarn beer, which I love. I mean, I don't know what yarn beer is supposed to taste like, but I know that everybody loves it. So pretty much just imagine the beer that would taste the best to you. And that's what yarn beer is, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And uh, these are characters that they have to work really hard and then they have to eat a lot to build back their strength. So there's just yeah. banquets all the time. Yeah. Yep. And even when it's not in that situation, the I could probably flip through and find sections about food in all of the books. Uh, Crystal Singer, Kilachandra and Crystal Line are the three books. And they're all very good, I think. I mean, I think Anne McCaffrey's writing dropped off as she got older. I don't know. But um, this passage from Kilachandra, where she had been kidnapped and placed on an island and managed to escape, and she ends up at this island celebration out on the beach with some of the people who kidnapped her, though they don't recognize her because she's changed so much, but there just happens to be this this feast going on where everybody kind of contributes, and this one passage really kind of sums up what's going on, especially since there's like, there's a lot of like sex going on with the food and everything, but she's there with Lars who doesn't recognize her, but they do end up having sex spoilers. Uh, Lars kept his left hand lightly on her thigh as he filled their plates from the foods displayed in the center of the table, breaded fried fish, steaming white roots, chopped raw vegetables, large yellow tubers, which had been baked in poly leaves and exuded a pungent spiciness. And then later on, they mention the smacker fish, which is apparently something that's in the island. Uh, She was indeed grateful for the second slice of the smacker, for it was succulent and highly unusual in taste, having nothing oily or fishy about it. The fermented polyjuice was more subtle than the overripe fruit she had eaten on the island. Um, And they, like, serve them dark red melons at one point where you can either scoop the seeds out of them or sort of eat them like a cantaloupe and everything. Every time I read it, I'm like, gosh darn it, I'm hungry. (laughs) And here's a vague one that I know neither of us are going to have a copy of. 
um, the Heidi books when we were growing up. Oh, do you actually have a copy of that? Did you? Is that one of your choices? No, it's not. But I have to call the window up because um, you may not know. We're going to pull back the curtain on this. We had to sort of stop and start the recording again because... I don't know, there's some kind of delay going on. But I had actually, I do not have a copy of the book. It's actually at mom and dad's home in Florida, but I did actually find the passage online. Oh, great. Yes. Okay, cool. And I bet I know exactly which one you're going to pull up. It's when her grandfather is cooking for her for the first time, right? You got it right because, was it, was it you? No, I was actually looking for something else and I suddenly had this memory. I'm like, why do I have a memory of someone toasting cheese? Oh, Heidi! Yes, that's exactly what it is. Okay, so here's the whole passage, which also includes the bit about goat's milk in Heidi, which I think goat's milk is probably, in real life, if you were to drink it straight from the goat, it's I think it's probably a little odd, but I know people drink it all the time. I certainly like goat's cheese. But this is the description. So, the kettle soon began to boil, and meanwhile, the old man held a large piece of cheese on a long iron fork over the fire, turning it round and round till it was toasted a nice golden yellow on each side. Heidi watched all that was going on with eager curiosity. Then he brought her a large slice of bread and a piece of the golden cheese and told her to eat, after which he went down and sat in the corner of the table and began his own meal. Heidi lifted the bowl with both hands and drank without pause till it was empty, for the thirst of all her long, hot journey had returned upon her. Then she drew a deep breath in the eagerness of her thirst she had not stopped to breathe and put down the bowl. "'Was the milk nice?' asked her grandfather. "'I never drank any so good before,' answered Heidi. "'Then you must have more,' said the old man. "'And he filled her bowl again to the brim "'and set it before the child, "'who was now hungrily beginning her bread, "'having first spread it with the cheese, "'which, after being toasted, was soft as butter. "'The two together tasted deliciously, "'and the child looked the picture of content "'as she sat eating, and at intervals, "'taking further draughts of milk.'" And I'm like, what more do you need? You know? <laughs> and I remember we may have actually tried to toast cheese like that in the fireplace, mm. but it was mm. cheddar, which doesn't work so much because when you toast no. cheddar, it turns to liquid. So I think this was some kind yeah. of goat's milk cheese, I think. Most likely, yeah. The article that I read about it was called Heidi and Her Cheese, and it starts to go into what type of cheese it might have been. I haven't read the whole article yet. Believe me, after this podcast is done, I will, and I will put a link on there if it is helpful to everybody. But but yeah, I just oh, always sounded so good. Okay, so my next selection actually has two selections because I thought of one and then Catherine thought of another, and it is Swiss Family Robinson, which mm-hmm. is just filled to the brim of lovely descriptions. And I know that in the Swiss Family Robinson, it is not physically possible for the variety of foods and animals and birds and plants and all of that to be in one little island that they landed on. But I don't care because it's just fascinating no. to read that book. Oh, it is. And the version that we have, so Ursula Vernon, Ursula on Twitter, she actually did like a live tweet reading of Swiss Family Robinson, but she had an edition that got like way more preachy than our edition. Ours is just mostly the crazy adventures and the weird animals that they meet. But um, I had picked one section, but then I mentioned it to you and you're like, oh yeah, the bit with the cask of butter. And I'm like, oh, the butter. So one of the kids, you know, they're about ready to sit down and have their sort of meal after they've gotten off the wreck. And there's all sorts of stuff strewn about on the shore that had floated ashore from the wreck. And one of the boys, Ernest, says, uh, ah, he said, but if we had some butter, my boy, I replied, your perpetual if, if quite annoys me. Why do you not sit down and eat cheese like the rest of us? Not while I can get butter, he says. See here, father, and he pointed to a large cask. That barrel contains butter of some sort or another, for it is oozing out at the end. Really, Ernest, I said. We are 
indebted to you. I will open the cask. So saying I took a knife, uh, blah, 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 carefully cut a small hole, blah, 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 filling a coconut shell, we once more sat down and toasting our biscuits before the fire, spread them with a good Dutch butter. And I'm like, mm, 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 there is Dutch. absolutely nothing wrong with butter and nothing else on something. In fact, I just, oh, yeah, I oh, talked yeah. with somebody uh, at church today who said her mother every now and then her stack was just butter. And sometimes she would dip it in little sugar, which seemed like a bit much, but I'm like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, that's most of the time when, like, I remember we would go to the little bistro at our workplace and get snacks and they had a salad bar and I would get a bunch of veggies and some ranch dressing. And my friends are like, wow, you're being really healthy. I'm like, the vegetables are just a vehicle for the ranch dressing. You'd look at me weird if I just drank ranch dressing, I'm sure. (laughs) So the bit that I had actually thought of was it's these cassava roots or kind of mangrove roots of some kind. Manioc. I actually looked that up. Manioc is the other word for it. So he said that you had to grate them, which they do on like, think like a tobacco grater, I think, uh, to make it into like this sort of wet, sappy pith. And then you put it in bags and you squeeze it until all of the juice runs out because the juice is what the poison is in it, which I'm like, okay. Um, so they just squeeze all of the juice out of it and it makes kind of like a, like a flour. And he wanted to make them into like little cakes, but he didn't want to feed them to his family first, just in case it was still poisonous. So I think he gave it to the monkey and some chickens, but he said, um, let's see, while, uh, while an iron plate placed over a good fire was getting hot, I mixed the meal with water and a little salt, kneaded it well, and forming a thickish cake, laid it on the hot plate. When one side presently became a nice yellow-brown color, it was turned and was quickly baked. It smelt so delicious that the boys quite envied the two hens and the monkey. And then, of course, later on, they find out that it's perfectly safe. Nobody died. So uh, they said now no time was to be lost, and the bread-making commenced in earnest. A large fire was kindled, the plates heated, and the meal made into cakes, each of the boys busily preparing his own and watching the baking most eagerly. Mistakes occurred, of course. Some of the bread was burned some not done enough, but a pile of nice, tempting cakes was at length ready, and with plenty of good milk, we breakfasted quite royally and in high spirits at our success. And you know, it doesn't quite match the description, but did you know what I always think of when I read that passage? Um, 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 Granny's fried cornbread. That's it, exactly, yes. I just, I mean, I think that was our only experience with any kind of like flat because it wasn't like bread it was more like just like flat cakes like batter poured on something and it would be baked on a griddle but I think we heard that and we thought fried and really that was our closest thing we could think yeah, of. Yeah, and it, it's delicious whatever it is. So I still love the fact yeah. that we oh. accidentally set the stove on fire when we were making those at one time <laughs> and we didn't let anybody know about it. We're just like, okay, get the baking powder, dump it on there and it's fine. You know what? Baking soda really works. In case you're wondering when they always say if you have like a oven fire or a stove fire um, because of grease and everything and they tell you not to put water on it, they say to put baking soda on it. Totally works. So what's your next suggestion? Uh, okay, so uh, Louisa May Alcott's Little Men. And I don't have a passage because the two sections that I'm thinking of are entire chapters. Now, uh, one of them is the harvest chapter, where it's just a rundown of what each one of the children was growing in their garden and what they did with it afterwards, like beans given to the cook or pumpkins that were, one of which was turned into the gigantic pumpkin uh, for the carriage in a production of Cinderella, I think. And I think right. Dan... 
um, his contribution was to just get wild foods from out in the forest, you know, wild nuts and herbs and things like that. And just all of it is wonderful. I love that. But the real foodie one is Daisy. And when um, they decide to buy her, because she decided that she's really interested in cooking, and they buy her a toy stove that is a working stove with all of the oh, yes. supplies and the pans and everything, and her cooking pancakes at one point, and Ah, yeah, just all of it is wonderful. And I know it's geared towards the idea that she showed an interest in cooking, so let's train her to be a very good mother. But it's still, it's just, it's very positive. It's this idea that she's found that something that she loves, let's work with that. Let's find ways to like teach her, but still let her have her enthusiasm for something. So yeah, I loved all that. There was also, she and uh, the other girls at the school threw a tea party and they told the boys if they wanted any of the treats that she was baking, they were going to have to dress up and act like real gentlemen. And they started doing it that way. And then they got mad at each other over something and was pelting each other with cakes. But that's also it was, so <laughs> it was adorable that's, chapter. That's a great one. At one point, Tommy's like yelling at people through the door, the keyhole in the door. Yeah, know, yeah kind because of defending himself. I think by um, yelling. Uh, uh, Daisy's brother, you know, because the teacher comes in and she's scolding all of them for being so awful because the girls were crying at this point. And her brother says, "I'm really sorry." And Tommy from locked outside in the hallway, "I'm not." <laughs> It's so fun. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there's a lot of good food in that book, too. I mean, there's the Harvest chapter, which I think rolls into the Thanksgiving chapter. I think so. more stuff about, yeah, exactly. And then there's also when they were all sitting around the fire one night and a description of them going and getting popcorn to pop over the fire and chestnuts that you kind of heat down in the grate, and they go get apples so you can eat apples and something about that. I mean, it's very simple, but that's another food passage I remember from that one. Now, I do actually have a copy of this book. I might even have the... A copy that we grew up with from mom and dad's place. But the one thing about that chapter that I really didn't like was that the boys are sitting around the fire and they decide they want to invite the girls to come, you know, make popcorn and have roasted nuts and everything with them and while they've sat around the fire. So Tommy went to go get them and they were all, I think, sitting with um, the teacher and knitting or sewing or doing some girl thing. And Tommy says, please, ma'am, could you lend us the girls for a little while? We'll be very careful of them, said Tommy, winking one eye to express apples, snapping his fingers to signify popcorn, and gnashing his teeth to convey the idea of nutcracking. The girls understood this pantomime at once. I'm like, what? That doesn't tell you anything. That would have looked yeah, like he no. was having a stroke. <laughs> Seriously, they even said that. There's like a comment. They're wondering if he's having a fit or whatever. But it's like, the only thing I think of with winking is like the apple of my eye, maybe? But it's a real... It's a reach. It's, it, it really, really is. is a reach. I mean, I even remember when I was growing up reading that passage, just thinking, that doesn't tell you anything. No, I, I think I just wrote it off being like, it's old times. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe that was a comment. Maybe apple winking meant an apple back then. I don't know. Yeah, entirely possible. Now, this one is not exactly food, but it is, it's a drink. And I just, I always love the description of this. Now, this is the Dark Angel trilogy, which... Kath and I have issues with because it ends in a way that did not make us very happy. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, oh man, it's 
it's after going through the whole trilogy, which is just a beautiful, gorgeously weird trilogy. And you get to the end and you're like, what? You're going to end? It's like not as bad as Why the Last Man, but it's close, you know? So, um, so it's hard to recommend it to anybody. But I do like the first book. And it starts with Ariel, who's with Edwin. Edwin is basically her mistress. And Ariel is the slave in this situation, though Edwin usually treats her pretty nicely and doesn't hit her too much. But um, it's their job to go and get hornflower liqueur because there's a wedding and hornflower liqueur they say these hornflowers grew on a tiny gray silver bush which lived only on the highest steeps where the air was rare and perilously thin not the slightest breeze ever stirred to disturb them each branch of the bush was covered with tiny trumpet-shaped flowers yellowish white translucent as frost each trump was filled with a tiny drop of pale golden liqueur sweeter than ginger and richer than rum and apparently if you you have to harvest it by tipping the flowers one by one into a little container to just get that little drop. So you're just kind of harvesting it drop by drop, but you can't harvest it too much ahead of time because it just goes bad very, very quickly. So they're up there to do that. And there's this whole description of her just carefully tipping each flower into the container, trying not to spill that one little drop. Meanwhile, these little hummingbirds that are no bigger than bees keep trying to like suck the liquor out of her hand before she gets into the bottle. It's a beautiful passage. Well, that just illustrates exactly how strange this book is because the whole book is filled with descriptions like that. And I think the... I think it's the second book. It starts getting a tiny bit almost like a video game story where she has to travel uh-huh. to all the different regions to find all the different gargoyles, I think, or she stumbles yep. across all the different gargoyles that retreated to that region when she had set them free in the first book. It's so weird. I I really I really do recommend the series. I kind of wish she had ended it differently, but I think the ending also works narratively. Oh, it, it, I mean, it really does. It logically makes a lot of sense, but I just, I had my hopes set on it going in a certain direction, and it did not. Nope. So in case you're wondering, but yeah, it is, it's a great book. All right, I only had one more main one, I think, unless we think of other things to think about other than uh, Little House in the Prairie, but... Um, Catherine Valente's In the Night Garden. It's the first book in the Orphan Tales, which are a collection of two books. It's the first one of her books I ever read. And I, I think it is still my favorite just because it's a kind of... Uh, thousand and One Nights, Ara- was it a Thousand and One Nights, Ara- Thousand and One Arabian Nights? Arabian Nights. Yeah, something like yeah, that. It's, something like that. Yeah. it's sort of that style where one tale leads to another one, leads to another one, jumps back to the main one. So it's just all twisted and braided together. And Catherine Valente's prose is just, it's, it's so delicious and decadent and just all over and you never expect where it's going to go. So I really, I highly recommend this one. But the framing sequence is it's a little girl that she lives in the garden of the um, the king's palace, I think. But nobody will come near her because her eyes have like black around them, almost like a mask. And everyone figures that she's cursed. So she's allowed to live there, but nobody really, you know, does anything for her. So she has to survive on her own. Well, the prince actually he's like the same age as her he finds her at one point and starts talking to her and she tells him that the mark around her eyes is words and she's figured out how to read them in a mirror and she promises to tell him some of them but wants to know if he can bring some food and he's intrigued so he brings her he goes into the kitchen and just like 
raids the kitchen for food to bring it out to her. And then this is what the description. On a little square of silk lay a glistening roasted dove, fat peaches and cold pears, a half loaf of buttery bread covered in jam, broiled turnips and potatoes, a lump of hard cheese, and several sugared violets whisked away from the table garnish. He drew from his pocket a flask of pale watered wine, the great prize of his kitchen adventures. And of course, the little girl's won over completely because she's never eaten this well, but it's just also wonderful to have someone trying to do something for her. And it's just, and it just leads to just magical. This is a treasure of a book. So I definitely highly recommend it. In the Night Garden by Catherine Valente. Absolutely. So I have two honorable mentions. Um, One is the beginning little like breakfast lunch party in the beginning of the hobbit where all the dwarves come by yeah. there's not like there's not like really specific descriptions of the food but they do mention a lot of the foods that they're asking for and when basically all of the dwarves are almost there um, someone says you know what's that tea no thank you a little red wine i think for me and for me said thorn and raspberry jam and apple tart and mince pies and cheese and pork pie and salad and more cakes and ale and coffee if you don't mind put on a few eggs there's a good fellow gandalf called after him as the hobbits stumped off to the pantries and just bring out the cold chicken and pickles. <laughs> I'd like, I'd eat all of that. That'd be great. So my honorable mention uh, is also C.S. Lewis. Uh, did you ever read the space trilogy that he wrote? You know, I feel like I did, but I have absolutely no memory of it whatsoever. So the first one, Out of the Silent Planet, is really interesting and it just sets the whole stage for this idea of civilizations being on the different planets and on the moon. But in the second one, Paralandra, uh, is when he goes to Venus, and Venus is an ocean, and on the ocean are floating islands, and I mean like an actual island with trees and bushes and all this, you know, stuff that you would have on a regular island, except since it's floating, the topography changes depending on the waves that are going under it. So very, very magical setting. But there's just all sorts of little mention about the food that he finds and the berries that he finds and a fruit that when you walk under it, it splits open and you have this cold, refreshing shower just right there. But I just... Oh, wow. But it's all wrapped up in the idea of, you know, the main character trying one and enjoying it and then reaching for another one and then realizing he's not actually hungry. He just wants to repeat the experience. So that comes up a bunch of times that that's, you know, humans overindulge because we try something and really, really like it. And then we're just keep on trying to get that high or that, you know, re-experience that first experience of having it. So I guess something to remember for Thanksgiving to keep you from eating too much. Do you really need that second helping? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, My other honorable mention, because I don't have it in front of me. Actually, it's an honorable mention because there isn't like a really good description of it. But it is in uh, the Dragonlance books. It's Odix Spice Fried Potatoes. Yay! I love this. Uh, yeah, and it's it's mentioned that it's like at the end of the last home, it's one of the specialties of the house, and he makes it, and everyone loves it. And we did buy a book that was like a companion to the Dragonlance series, and it had a recipe in there, but I've gone back and looked at it, and it's not very interesting. It's basically just fried potatoes, maybe, I think, with some paprika on it. You could look online, and there are several people who have come up with recipes that they think these potatoes are supposed to be, and they're all very, very tasty. Uh, Another little not honorable mention, but just another reference, 
go to the How to Drink YouTube channel and look up his pop culture cocktails because he will create versions of stuff that he's seen in video games, in movies. But yeah, the first one of those that I watched was... um, Oh, it's from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I knew it. A Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. He does a version of that, <laughs> and he goes. He does nice. each element and finds something that he can substitute that's actually drinkable to put in there, and you know things like that. Oh God, he also one of my favorites, but for a different reason is uh, the Flaming Mo from The Simpsons. Oh yeah, and that one's called yeah. Broke My Toe Making a Flaming Mo, and I don't oh. know why. It's possibly because he has the little. Because he'll have little subtitles appear, and a lot of times they're incredibly snarky. But he warns everybody, loud noise coming up. And then he will actually count down to when he like turns around because he hears a cell phone and catches his arm on the metal straw that he's got in the big beer stein he has this drink in and knocks it on his foot. And he literally oh, no. broke his toe. And it is the funniest thing. <laughs> he's, he's an honest-to-God pain, and I can't stop laughing. Oh, my my goodness. I've watched his channel a lot. He got, he does some really he good does. stuff. It's like he's making drinks, but he's a mixologist, so he knows what like the chemical reactions of certain substances are going to do with each other and what would taste good and what wouldn't taste good. So he's not just like, "Uh, this is blue and uh, why not maybe tequila." He knows what would go well together. So that's when he's making these drinks. It's fascinating to watch him come up with stuff. Okay, so this is the finale. So the Little House on the Prairie books are filled with food. I mean, so many chapters. There are like little chapters. I'm going to read two quick ones that I like from Little House in the Big Woods. We're saving the best one for last, of course. So the two that I have, one is when it's they've harvested maple syrup from the forest and they go to a big dinner at grandma's place because that's what you do when you have like a bumper crop of syrup and everyone brings food and she's cooking the syrup down in the kitchen and at one point she says you know they had this big dance and grandma runs out of the room because she realizes oh my god I had the pot on the stove and everybody stops and she comes in and she says the syrup is waxing come and help yourselves then everybody began to talk and laugh again They all hurried to the kitchen for plates and outdoors to fill the plates with snow. The kitchen door was open and the cold air came in. She and the other Laura, who's her cousin, I believe, and all the other children scooped up clean snow with their plates. Then they went back into the crowded kitchen. Grandma stood by the brass kettle, and with the big wooden spoon, she poured hot syrup on each plate of snow. It cooled into soft candy, and as fast as it cooled, they ate it. They could eat all they wanted, for maple sugar never hurt anybody. (laughs) See, I love that even more now, because there's a stand at the North Carolina State Fair every year from Vermont, and they have maple syrup cotton candy and that has spoiled me on any kind of cotton candy you just you cannot imagine how delicious this stuff is and we we'll we'll buy a bag and it hardly ever makes it home with us because we'll just eat it there (laughs) man i want some of that because my like cotton candy i like it but it's another one of those things that is good for like a few bites and then you're like i'm pretty good you know it's just like straight sugar with like you're tasting the blue dye that they put in or whatever but maple syrup oh man I'd, i'd eat cotton candy like that So the second passage from Little House is just a random thing in the very beginning. And also, you know, trigger warning in case you don't like pork. This is another pork bit because they had butchered a pig there and they were talking about all the different ways things were butchered. And they said, but even better than that was the pig's tail. Pa skinned it for them carefully and into the large end, he thrust a sharpened 
stick. Ma opened the front of the cook stove and raked hot coals out onto the iron hearth. Then Laura and Mary took turns holding the pig's tail over the coals. It sizzled and fried, and drops of fat dripped off of it and dripped on the coals. Ma sprinkled it with salt. Their hands and their faces got very hot, and Laura burned her finger, but she was so excited that she did not care. Roasting the pig's tail was such fun that it was hard to play fair, taking turns. At last it was done. It was nicely browned all over, and how good it smelled. They carried it into the yard to cool it, and even before it was cool enough, they began tasting it and burned their tongues. They ate every little bit off the meat of the bones, and then they gave the bones to Jack, and that was the end of the pig's tail. There would not be another till next year. So, Tacey, they even mentioned cracklins in, um, mm-hmm. and that's just rendered hog fat that has been rendered down mm-hmm. until you just have like the little chunk of crumbly fat. And I've had some of that from a nearby a pork place, uh, Nahunta. And wow, that is good stuff. But you really can't, yeah. you, you like taste a little bit and you're like, yeah, I'm good. So, because it's just that, yeah. It's, yeah. it's just fat. Yeah, it's different from pig skins, which right. you can get. Like pig skins are actually like puffed pig skins. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. It's not like the outside. It's like the the layer of fat underneath, I guess. Uh, they, they, those are pretty good eatings, too. Yeah, they sell a snack called cracklins, but it's basically like hardened pig skin with fat on it, which is also tasty, wow. but it's different from like cracklin cracklin from rendered lard. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So then, of course, we have our favorite bit, which was the whole reason why when we were kids, we checked out this cookbook from the library over and over again. I don't, I don't want to believe that that's the reason why we did, but I really think that's the reason why we did. Yeah, I think so. And it's really, we never actually made it. It might be a little complicated, but it is oh. bird's nest pudding. And as far mm-hmm. as I can tell, it's just like pastry with whole cored apples inset into it. And you bake the whole thing up and then you put it on a plate and you pour cream with nutmeg on top of it. And oh my goodness, does it sound tasty. Yeah, here's the passage in case you want it, because of course I have the cookbook. And she put a thick slice of bird's nest pudding on his bare plate and handed him the pitcher of sweetened cream speckled with nutmeg. Almanzo poured the heavy cream over the apples nested in the fluffy crust. The syrupy brown juice curled up around the edges of the cream. Amanzo took up his spoon and ate every last bit. Oh my goodness. I really, the author, I'm sure she went through a lot of privation when she was growing up. And you can tell with all of the references to food. I mean, she just lingers over all the descriptions of food. So that's actually, that's one of my favorite literary cookbooks, I think, out there is the Little House in the Prairie cookbook because it has all of it. Oh yeah. And we even try to remember as kids, we tried to make hard candy because there's a whole thing for like pulled candy mm-hmm. in there. They specifically say you can't do it when it's too hot. There's a whole passage in the book where the kids try to do it, but it's too hot and it doesn't work. Where are we trying to make it? In, in Florida, Florida. In the middle of the summer. Yeah. yeah. Totally doesn't yeah, work. It's something to do with the heat and the humidity, which Florida has a lot of in the summer. So yeah, yeah. I, yeah. We, that is a real good sign of us not paying attention to instructions or this kind of magical no. thinking. Like maybe if we try it, we'll make it work. I, I have no idea. Yeah. No, no, no. But anyway, that's it's for all the food stuff. We hope that, uh, I don't know, maybe if you listen to this before you had Thanksgiving dinner, you're even more hungry now. Um, <laughs> and if you've already had Thanksgiving dinner, we hope that you waited until later because this is not going to be quite as appetizing when you're that full, I'm sure. Right. Yes, exactly. I'll probably want to put something in the description about that because, geez. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to do a real quick recap of Laura Olympus because we like to stay on schedule. So once again, this is episode 219 and 220. 
220. And 219 starts where episode 218 left off, where Persephone had just told Daphne and Eros that she had not had sex with Hades yet. And we start with uh, Eros is on the ground, lying on Daphne's lap, and Daphne is fanning him. And I just, I love her expression because she's just total concerned that he's just laid out. And the waitress is asking if he's fine, and he's just absolutely traumatized. And then the the waitress is still like, are are you sure? And then you hear Persephone, he's fine. And Persephone is just still sitting at the table trying to eat her salad, obviously irritated at the fact that Eros is being so dramatic about this. So, of course, Daphne and Eros want more explanations because... Daphne got to hear Persephone the entire time that she was on the mortal realm being separated from Hades. Apparently a big thing what she talked about was how much she really wanted to have sex. She's like, I'm going to die if I don't have sex. And I would just absolutely, what, devour Hades, I think, if I saw him. And let's go. I'm five years late for yep. my dick appointment. Yep. I mean, it is there is no misunderstanding <laughs> it. She was very enthusiastic and thinking about it all the time. But then it kind of comes out in between the lines she doesn't say Apollo's name, but she does say at one point, she's like, this is ridiculous. I, I should be better by now. And that's when Daphne and Eros turn completely around. Yeah, they're both like, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, they're obviously they're not going to try to pressure because they yeah. know that she's experienced trauma and they don't want to, you know, a joke's a joke, but they're not going to push it too far. And it's just another yeah. example of how lovely this series is that you have people that realize, oh, wait a minute, you need actual nurturing now, not us being jerks. Yeah, and... They do find out that, you know, she was in bed with Hades at one point. So this is not all because of Persephone's, you know, possible issues with sex. She was making out with Hades and things were kind of maybe starting on a good direction. And then Hades was like, oh, well, look at the time. We have to get up early in the morning. Let's go to sleep. And, you know, she's like, all of a sudden she's completely covered up with blankets again. She's like, how did you just tuck me in? But um, it definitely seemed like Hades suddenly put on the brakes and... Persephone's worried that maybe she's just not any good at all this. Well, Hades looked freaked out. And if it's Hades, Mm. I'm going to assume he thinks that he's going to traumatize her by pushing things too far or too fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, Daphne ends up, like, suggesting that maybe Persephone ought to think about going to her therapist again, which I hope because I'd like her to see um, Chiron the centaur again. That would be really fun. I love that character. I'm so Mm. sorry we only got, like, what, two, maybe three episodes with her the last time? Because she was awesome. Yeah, she was very cool. But then Persephone doesn't want to dominate the conversation, so she asks, you know, everybody how they're doing. And we find out that Eros in the 10 years, I mean, it's been 10 years. It's been a while He's married and has a kid. And he was apparently the, like, I don't know, the referee at the breakup between his mom and his dad, which is apparently really nasty. Um, yeah. And, yeah, other than that, sure, he's he's doing great. But, I mean, yeah. it flew by that description. Literally, I got married and I have a kid now. And Persephone, of course, wants to hear all about the kid. And Eris is going to tell her. And then he gets a phone call. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to deal with a family emergency. He did what? And like, have you tried a hose? And Daphne. <laughs> It's like a hose, Persephone. This is probably involving uh, Aries. Yeah, I'm almost positive it does. But um, then Persephone asks Daphne if she wants to come with her to the bank. And so they're on the way to the bank and they're just chilling and having a good time. And then Persephone freezes and Daphne's like, what? What's happening? And there's this big, huge placard on the wall. And it's a picture of Apollo. And it says Apollo for president. (sighs) 
And I, what I want to know is president of the bank or president of Olympus? Because I didn't think Olympus had a president. They have a king. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he's trying to take away power from Zeus or if maybe he just wants to be a bank president. I don't know. Maybe there's something in mythology that we're missing. There might be a thing where Apollo is the king of banking? I don't know. You would think that would be Hades, honestly, but I love that picture of Persephone and Daphne staring up at the picture because it's looking yeah. down at them and it makes them look very small and vulnerable. And there's a shadow from the wall where the poster is looming over them. So you can really feel how ominous that is. But then we switch over to Hades and Hecate and all of their little minions. And Hades is going down into Tartarus and he's got a rope attached to him so he can be yanked out of there in the first sign of danger. And that, I believe, is where before he even goes in, that's where the episode ends with him about ready to go into Tartarus. Yeah, about the only thing that we really learn about that is apparently his code name for his security team is Blue Pancake. <laughs> <laughs> Which he is not happy about, but all of his minions are like, too bad, that's the nickname. You don't yeah, have to yeah. Like that. Okay. yeah, well, his... Um, uh, it's one of the Furies, I think, who's like the head of a security detail. And she said, sorry, boss, you were in the can when we were choosing names and I made an executive decision. And there was a pause and Hades says, I wasn't in the can and you're not an executive. Doesn't help. They don't Doesn't care. help. So, nope. No. He, he's got really tough people working for him. I like that. So, okay, next episode, this is the Fast Pass one. And he starts to go down into Tartarus and he like manifest his um, his Bident, his uh, symbol of power. And that's a very cool picture, by the way. And he goes up to the door and he commands it to open. And nothing happens. And I'm there thinking it's because Persephone was the last person to talk to Tartarus, and Tartarus doesn't want to deal with anyone but Persephone. But no, that's not it. Nope. Like, he tries giving it an offering. All of his minions are kind of like, open the door, boss. He's like, I know how to, oh, I know how to open a door. But he finally finds out there's this booming voice that comes beyond and it says something like, you know, stupid peons, did you really think it was going to be that easy? And the booming voice says, Tartarus is mine now. Nobody can enter until you bring me my golden traitor. And yeah. it's, that's Hera. He's he's yeah. still furious about Hera and what she did to betray him. Yeah, and there's no way Hades would never give him Hera. Even Zeus, who is a jerk and sleeps around, he wouldn't give him Hera. So I don't I don't know how they're going to sort this one out. But they definitely need to get Persephone back down there because you know she needs to know she and Tartarus bonded, and now Kronos is in charge of Tartarus. She's got to come and save him. Yep. So we switch over, and you see Persephone's eyes. And you see the word Persephone, but it's all blurred out. And I think it's because she's sitting there panicking. And you see it a little bit louder and you focus on her beautiful picture of Persephone. I think all of the pictures of Persephone were particularly nice because I think um, Rachel really liked drawing her in her whole you know, sexy kitten Olympus outfit that she's wearing now instead of that very traditional Greek outfit she was wearing all the time before. But yeah, it's Daphne and they're sitting in the car and she wants to know if she's okay. And Persephone's like, I'm perfectly fine. Why would you ask? And she's like, well, you're white knuckling the wheel and we've been sitting outside the bank for 10 minutes now. Yeah. And Persephone says something like, you know, I know he's around and everything. I just, I didn't know that just seeing a picture of him would affect me like this. And Daphne says, don't be sorry, he's terrible. Yep. So, I, again, we don't have any like explicit discussion of what Apollo tried to do to Daphne, which I think... Yep 
is is pretty. I mean, Apollo Apollo did some god awful things to Persephone, but he tried to murder Daphne, and I feel like this isn't being addressed. I just, I mean, Rachel Smythe is so ramping up the tension. I mean, the commenters are going crazy as well. Everybody's like, "What's Apollo doing? What's going to happen to him? How's he going to react to Persephone being queen of the underworld?" For crying out loud, because we did in another couple pages or panels rather, we got to see a reaction from somebody who had not been nice to Persephone previously, who now has to treat her differently because she's the queen of the underworld. Yep, and that's the guy's name is Tori, and he was the classmate that Persephone was going to meet to go over like lessons and help tutor him and whatever, until he found out that Hades and Hecate had stolen the eye of a photographer who had taken a picture of Persephone and Hades without permission. So he decided that she was, you know, the... The, concub- the dark concubine that she was getting favors and he was just kind of nasty to her and he's sitting there in the bank and, and he steals a stapler at one point. Now when did staplers get to be the symbol of something that's worth stealing? Was I, it the, I figured was it the office? I think it was, yeah, I think it, I always figured it was, um, was it Office Space, I think, was the name of the movie? Yeah, 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 yeah I yeah, think so. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I just... I, but, I'm sorry, staple, staplers are irritating. They jam all the freaking time. I would not have one in my house. But. No, I don't understand. I mean, just like use a paper clip. It's fine. And then you can take the paper clip off if you don't need it anymore. But um, yeah, he's just all of a sudden he looks up in surprise and Daphne came in, you know, she's, I think she's holding hands with Persephone still because she was holding hands with her in the car to try and uh, give her some support and everything. Adam... Persephone is just like, she's so bright and happy and cheery. And for a second, I thought it's just, oh, it's Persephone's just her normal, cheerful attitude. No, she's messing with him. Yeah, yeah. She says, do you remember me at the university? I was going to tutor you. And you called me Hades' dark concubine, shunned me, and talked about me behind my back during one of the hardest times of my life. <laughs> so he's oh obviously God. freaking out. And it's like, sorry, how can I help you? And she said, it's water under the bridge. So mm. I think she's made her point because the, the shadows are kind of looming behind them so it's very obvious she knows she's being intimidating and that's exactly what she's going for oh yeah long story short she gets him to look up her account information which he also he takes off because she had opened that account with Hades because she didn't have a credit score she didn't have ID nothing no references or whatever now she's got a resume and references and one of the references is queen of the underworld Um, (laughs) and so he takes Hades name off of it so she can have the account all by herself and that he's looking at it you know they had put some money in it but it was a, an account that I guess would increase with interest and everything, and nobody's touched it for 10 years. Turns out she's rich. Yep, yep. Oh, I did love that one aside bit when um, he says, um, I can remove Hades as co-signer now since you brought proof of identification, occupation, shade coordinator. And then you see just just her eyes as she's looking over the computer right at him, and her eyes are in that br- bright red um, dark queen mode. And she says, please update that to queen of the underworld. So I just <laughs> I love how threatening she's being here. It's great. But so he, I mean, technically, all right, he doesn't say that she's rich. He does say something like, wow. And then we cut over to Hades, 
who had apparently gotten a call from her, and he's kind of worried because he's like, um, she wanted me to meet her out there, and this, where, where are we going? What's happening? I have to tell her about what's happening with Tartarus. And he gets to this area, and it's not a good area, and there's this kind of rundown building, and then he sees Persephone. And she's on the balcony and waving him to come over, and he flies over, and she says, oh, I missed you, and they kiss, and he wants to know, what on Olympus are you doing here? And she said, well... I kind of live here now, so she's that's gotten, that, that's where the episode ends, and I guess she's gotten her own place, which is one of those things that she really wanted to do after the trial was over, so now she gets yeah. to do it. So, she has her own place. It's like an apartment building, so do you think that she's rich and she bought the building, or do you think that she's not rich, but she does have a little money of her own, and she's just renting a place there because that's what she can afford now? I mean, she's either very rich and has bought an entire building, or she's very not rich and she's gotten like a cheap apartment someplace. What do you I think it is? F- I feel like she's kind of rich, because Tori's expression when he was looking at what the balance was, you know, it had accumulated to over 10 years. He was pretty impressed, so. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's interesting. But anyway, that's it. That's Laura Olympus. This episode has gone on much longer than we thought it would. Um, <laughs> we will just go ahead and close it out there. That'll wrap us up for the week. So make sure to check out PixLadyGeek.com for all the book reviews, the movie reviews, the comic book reviews, the photo galleries. Yay! I went to DesignerCon. Oh, so. I've seen a couple of pictures that she posted. Some very yeah. adorable stuff. So how was the oh. um, the the display? What like was there anything in particular that stood out to you from what you saw there? Oh man. And it's really hard to pick because I have like um, I think I'm going to have a photo gallery with like 150 photos in it. So it's wow. hard to pick a favorite out of all that. Just so much beautiful creativity. Um, maybe we'll talk about it next week. When we've got more time. There were um, it was great to be back. I hadn't been back since 2019, though Lauren went to Designer Con for us last year. But it was really it was very fun to be back in all that. But uh, well, uh, by the time this episode drops, hopefully I will have one, possibly two photo galleries posted. Which which we will put a link in the description. All that and more, pixeladygeek.com. So we will definitely have a Night Vale episode next week. We will, yes. And um, right. just want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving if you're celebrating, and if not, happy Thursday. Yes, a very happy Thursday. And one way or the other, we will talk to everybody in one week. Talk to you later.
And we suddenly thought, we suddenly thought there was a car going by. 